The Energy Gang is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar operates a 260-megawatt facility right here in the U.S. Through state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality, Mission Solar's modules, every one of which is made in their Texas facility, offer world-class performance and guaranteed long-term reliability. Are you going to be at Solar Power International in Las Vegas? We'll go see them at booth 3975. SPI is coming up in September, and you can go talk to the Mission Solar staff and check out their high-powered modules at booth 3975. Go say hello. You can also find out more about Mission's high-power solar modules at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. What happens when lawmakers let industry craft a large, complicated bill and then rush it through the legislature without reading it? We saw what happens in South Carolina, where two utilities in the state have walked away from a nuclear plant they were building there, leaving ratepayers to foot the bill and putting thousands of people out of work. And it's the result of a piece of legislation that few knew much about passed a decade ago. And in keeping with this theme of people getting used, we're going to talk about a couple newly published features about Louisiana, one on the recovery after last year's record-breaking floods, and one on the state's disastrous environmental record. But first, we turn to, what else, Tesla. The first Model 3s were given to customers recently, the first solar roofs are up on a few houses, and Musk says he's even ready to build the first Hyperloop himself. With me are Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw both of whom are uh, crossing over their vacations. Catherine was kind enough to join us from the Adirondacks while on vacation, and Jigger is about to leave for vacation as soon as we finish here. So, Catherine, how are you? How's How are things in the Adirondacks? It's beautiful, as always. It's such a great place to decompress, and I feel lucky that we get to do this every August. And Jigger's going down to Kentucky, right? What are you doing down there? Well, it's a family reunion on the... Uh... Kushali side of the uh, the family. So it's going to be fun. I'm going to fly into Nashville and drive up to Kentucky. All right. Well, I know one guy who doesn't take vacations, Elon Musk. The so-called real Tony Stark is back with an Iron Man blockbuster sequel this summer called the Model 3. The new mass market EV from Tesla is about to enter full production. And Musk threw a little party a couple weeks ago to celebrate before his company goes into production hell. Those are his words. At least he's honest to his company. That means uh, 20,000 cars each month by the end of this year and 50,000 per month starting next year. So, Jigger, what uh, are you keeping your eyes on as Tesla enters this new phase? Well, I I think that, you know, it's great to see Elon actually acknowledging that the company uh, scaling up production is going to be such a challenge. It's something we talked about in the last podcast. Um, I also think that the car and the reviews and the features of the car were pretty amazing. I mean, obviously, I haven't seen one yet, but I read about it online. And the way that the vent follows the seat to provide more cooling and heating in the right places, I mean, it's just really thoughtful. So from that perspective, I think it's great. Um, I still, you know, have concerns about Tesla as a company, but I think that like the Model 3 launch seems like it's it's great news and far faster than I predicted. Yeah, one thing I was glad about is that their $35,000 price tag 
um, is before incentives as opposed to trying to sell it based on continuing to get a tax credit. So um, the tax credit starts ramping down after they sell 200,000 cars. And they're going to bump into that very, very quickly when they say by 2018, they're going to be manufacturing 500,000 cars a year. So um, they hit this $200,000 threshold, which gives you $7,500 a car. And by Q2 after that, it ramps down to 50% of that $7,500. And by Q4, uh, 25%. And then by Q6, it's zeroed out. So the the first you know 200,000 cars they sell will get this credit. And after that, it'll start ramping down. But I think the strong point is that that's not how they're selling their car. They're selling it based on $35,000 base price. And I think that's a smart way to go. You know, Musk has been known for uh, promising way too much and not delivering. Um, he, you know, he has largely lived up to his long-term plan, but he's always way behind schedule. And for the first time with the Model 3, we're actually seeing the company somewhat on schedule. Is that a good sign, Jigger? Um, do, do you think that uh, that that bodes well for Tesla as it moves into mass production? Oh, it's a fantastic sign. I Look, I, I think Elon really outdid himself here. And I think it's great news all around. I just still wouldn't own the stock. I, I think that I still have concerns with, you know, I think when you think about the executives that have left recently that we talked about. Um, but also, it seems like the Model 3 is probably the wrong car. You know, when you think about where American consumers are right now, he probably should have rolled out the Model Y first, which was sort of the crossover version of the Model X. Um, people just don't buy cars today. People buy trucks and SUVs. And I mean, even I have the Volvo XC90, which is the, you know, plug-in hybrid uh, Volvo SUV. And so, you know, one of the things that concerns me is that I think he went after this sort of middle-class market, but middle-class people don't buy cars anymore. Yeah, the thing, the thing is that he's created a product that people want. And I think it's a little bit like the iPhone that, um, you know, there was more of a, we're going to pull you into this market than that you're pushed into the market. So I actually think people are going to purchase this car and then that'll give him the bandwidth to be able to manufacture new models. And I think he certainly has that in plan. I also think we need to look at where the markets are globally and how many countries are really taking a stand and putting policies into place that are going to create much stronger markets for electric vehicles. And I think that's where you're going to see a lot of these uh, sales as well. Yeah. I mean, the one, the other thing for me is a competition. I mean, I'm curious whether you guys really think that you know, competition is going to rear its ugly head. I think, you know, one of the things he had going for him is that BMW, Mercedes, and others were just never serious about EVs. I think they are now. And you look at the announcement by Volvo, I mean, it seems like the luxury car makers are starting to take this quite seriously. So I don't think competition is necessarily an ugly head. I think it's going to be good for the industry. So the other concern I have with Tesla is, I mean, their cash positions down to $3 billion. They've got finished goods inventories that are at $1.5 billion. I mean, I do think that Elon Musk is going to have to burn billions upon billions of dollars of capital before he actually gets to profitability. And the challenge with clean tech companies more broadly is that it's never clear whether there's an unlimited amount of money available for people to actually get to the finish line, right? I mean, at some point, if the investors turn away from him and say, uh, we don't want you to burn another $1.2 billion this quarter, then, you know, like he may not be able to complete his vision. Uh, was this uh, $1.5 billion bond issuance 
a good idea, Jigger? Any thoughts on the? Oh um, yeah, like in I mean in the entrepreneur space of which I'm quite familiar, um, there's a an old saying which is like if someone offers you money, take it. So like, I think the fact that he can raise a lot of money right now, he should build up as much of a cash hoard as he can right now, because times change. I mean, hell, we could have another 2008 financial crisis. You could have, you know, a correction in the stock market. There's lots of things that could happen that have nothing to do with Tesla that make it hard for him to raise cash. And because he's not profitable, um, he can't really execute his dream without other people's money. Let's take a pause here and talk about Mission Solar Energy, our sponsor. The solar industry is booming right now, and it employs over 260,000 people and counting. And Mission Solar is proud to be one of those employers. The company has a 260-megawatt solar manufacturing facility that supports local U.S. production, engineering, and office jobs right in San Antonio, Texas. That's directly contributing to America's burgeoning clean energy economy. Mission Solar's Texas-based location also makes it easier to fulfill the needs of domestic developers, so that keeps your projects moving and on schedule. And Mission Solar's in-house research and development laboratory keeps the company innovating and producing the highest quality U.S. modules possible. Come meet the Mission Solar team at Solar Power International, which is taking place in Las Vegas from September 10th through the 13th. They're going to be at booth 3975. Go say hello at booth 3975. And for those who aren't at the event, Check out Mission Solar's modules at missionsolar.com. If you want to get a sense of just how much the electricity system has changed in the last decade, look to South Carolina. No, the state isn't exactly a hotbed of distributed energy, but it is home to a newly abandoned nuclear power plant, the Virgil C. Summer Extension. That's where two 1,100-megawatt AP1000 Westinghouse reactors were being built until the two utilities behind the project... South Carolina Electric and Gas and Santee Cooper decided they didn't want to pursue the project because it didn't make economic sense. When the plant was first proposed, the utilities were expecting strong load growth, you know, back in 2007. And talk of a nuclear revival was in full swing then. With most other forms of carbon-free energy still expensive and the natural gas boom just starting, nuclear was seen as one of the more attractive alternatives to coal, if not the most attractive alternative. South Carolina also happens to be a leading nuclear state, uh, getting around half of its electricity from the resource. So when the Baseload Review Act was passed in 2007, written in consultation with utilities and pushed through the legislature, no one gave it much thought. After all, the very first words say... Quote, it's an act to protect South Carolina ratepayers by enhancing the certainty of investments. In reality, the bill allowed utilities to pass on the cost of building a large power plant without ever having to generate electricity, and it's what enabled the two utilities to walk away from the summer nuclear extension while South Carolinians continue to pay, and the political fallout was deep and swift. Catherine, how did we get to this point? This is an interesting story because Governor Mark Sanford at the time, who's now a member of Congress, but at, at that time he was the governor and you all might remember the famous hiking the Appalachian Trail story. Just Google it if you don't remember. He refused to sign this bill because he thought it would be bad for consumers, um, but it was veto proof. So it was allowed to become law without his signature. And basically the argument was that they would be able to charge consumers up front. It would save a billion dollars in construction, $4 billion in savings to consumers. And what it did was it shifted the risk from the utilities to the consumers. It made it much more difficult to challenge any rate increases. 
when utilities failed, it gave them the power to charge consumers for those failures. So what this has done, in fact, is made South Carolina the third highest state in the U.S. for electric bills. The only two states higher are Connecticut and Hawaii. 18% of their monthly utility bills are paying for nuclear reactors that have been abandoned and will never be built. So that's kind of the situation that we find ourselves in. Well, I think it's important to start with first principles, which is, I mean, the reason why like my company is in business to do what it does in the project finance space is to prevent these kinds of things from happening, right? If you had to have a private sector balance sheet that built the nuclear power plant, like General Electric or EDF or whatever, they would have charged an additional billion dollars in construction costs, and they would have charged an additional $4 billion for the nuclear power, but they also would have had really good cost controls in place to make sure this kind of stuff doesn't happen because their shareholders would have been on the hook if there were cost overruns. I mean, this is what I do with entrepreneurs every day. And they say, but Jigger, if I get my customers to just pay cash and put up a bond or get the city to just pay like using its revenue bonds, it'll be so much cheaper. It's a 4% interest. Yeah, that's true. But then there's nobody guarding the hen house, right? Like and ends up being that like that the city doesn't really know what it's doing and the the entrepreneur ends up having cost overruns and nobody's double checking, right? And so that's why project finance, you know, matters so much. And this is just violates all of the precepts of project finance where you say it doesn't matter like what the construction costs are or whatever else, you just put it on the ratepayer. The other thing is that this, um, the commission and the legislature, right now all hands are on deck to try to respond to the situation. Um, there need to be better processes in place for planning. So you need better integrated resource planning in states like this where you really look at what is the demand growth going to be? They built this plant with no sense of whether the demand was going to grow or not for this type of resource. They did not look at least cost planning. They didn't look at what are all the other resources that we could consider, including solar or energy efficiency, of course, which is the cheapest. So part of this was a planning exercise. They also did not allow consumers to be able to have any input and have control over how they wanted their energy future to grow. So I called somebody, a friend of mine, Caroline Golan, who works for Vote Solar, who said, look, this is not about solar versus all the other resources. She said, this is about putting planning processes in place that allow all resources to be considered. And then you're not up against this one versus another, but you're really looking at it from a much more holistic planning perspective. Well, and you also saw here that the South Carolina legislature basically overruled the Public Service Commission, which is not unlike what happened in Georgia. Georgia also passed a similar law that allowed for construction costs to be passed through to consumers. And it's one of those things where like, there's a reason why the state legislature is not involved in regulatory proceedings, because they generally are affected by these emotional arguments and aren't sort of clear-headed about things um, in a way that sort of a legal body like a regulatory commission might be. Right, right. And the regulatory commission has to look at what are the risks to the consumer. And this put all the risk on the consumer, which the the PSC would probably not have done without being forced to by the legislature. Well, the um, yeah, the political fallout was immense in South Carolina here. And the governor is scrambling. I, I believe that he is considering actually a full sale of Santee Cooper 
um, which could actually amount to the total construction costs so far. I believe the the project is about 40% done thus far. Uh, the numbers have ranged from $9 billion to $10 billion spent on the project. Um, of course, the final cost range for the uh, summer project is in the $27 billion range. What we're, we're left with is this worksite the size of 1,000 football fields in a rural area where you know a lot of people were lying on these construction jobs to build this facility. Yeah, there are 5,000 jobs that were lost from this. Yeah, 5,000 jobs. It's incredible. And electric customers are uh, in the area are paying 18% of their bill for this nuclear power plant, and they'll continue to see 18% of their bill go toward this nuclear power plant. Um, and it may not ever generate electricity. And But I think it's important to note that this is what the utility companies do for a living, right? This is not like a new thing. When utility companies ramp up transmission distribution expenditures from $6 billion a year 10, 10 years ago to $20 billion a year now, that extra $14 billion is waste, right? I mean, that's what the battery storage industry is trying to show people is that for one-tenth the cost, they can solve these problems. Um, but utility companies like to rate-based stuff. They just love to do that. And so part of this is getting the Public Service Commission and others to realize that ratepayers really matter and that these like sort of wasteful practices the utilities engage in need to be checked by somebody. Or change the business model for utilities so that they aren't rewarded for um, stranded assets. I think that we're probably going to see them all go bankrupt before that happens. So let's go to Louisiana for our final stop. Um, A year ago, the state was hit with a crippling flood that brought more water from the sky than Hurricane Katrina and caused over $10 billion in damage. But we didn't hear much about it. The flood just didn't get a lot of attention in the press. And as a result, federal funds have been slim. Uh, Climate Central reporter John Upton wrote a great story this week on the aftermath of the floods, where people in the poorest communities are struggling to put their lives back together. Meanwhile, reporter Justin Noble penned a powerful piece at Long Reads about communities around the state that are getting poisoned by industry, a consequence of the state making a deal many decades ago with big companies to basically turn African-American communities into industrial buffer zones. And this, of course, has been a long problem. Um... You know, Louisiana is famous for Cancer Alley. Uh, these communities have been afflicted for, for, for decades now. But this piece, I think, brought together a lot of the, um, the consequences that communities are feeling today. So, Catherine, even while on vacation, you've had your ear to the ground on this issue, right? Yeah, I talked to Daryl Malik Wiley of the Sierra Club in New Orleans, and um, he's been down there a long time uh, working on these issues. He said, uh, you know, politics is a full contact sport in Louisiana. The legislator, legislature is bought and paid for by the oil and gas lobbyists. It's really the state is run by those industries. And so it's really hard to make any headway given that and given the money. And part of the issue, as you mentioned, is that while Louisiana produces 20% of the chemicals in the nation, that does not bring in the income um, to the state that you would think. It's one of the poorest states. The wealth does not stay in the state. And there's this additional burden of then all these toxic pollutants on the population of the state, um, much of which is quite, quite poor and doesn't work in those facilities while they have to live next to them. So part of the issue is, well, how do you change this cycle? And 
there, there are a couple things that have happened. One is uh, Lieutenant General Russell Honoré, who uh, went in as part of the um, recovery from Katrina as part of the military to try to help clean up, but who's also a native. And basically said, you know, I've spent 37 and a half years defending democracy, and I come and find that there is no democracy in the state, you know, where I'm from. So he has really put together what he calls the Green Army to fight for reducing pollution in the state of Louisiana. And they've had two big wins this year, which don't sound like big wins, but given the kind of onion of politics in that state, this is, uh, these are two things that are, that are steps forward. One is that they passed a law that the tumor registry needs to count not just by county and parish, but by census tracts so they can get much more uh, definitive and localized information of where all those tumors and cancers are existing because they've been able to use um, just they, they've been able to take numbers that are you know countywide and it makes it look not so bad. So they're all averages. The second thing that they've done is that they've made the Baton Rouge Water Board um, require them to have open and public meetings and and have open records. So the Water Board makes huge decisions, and Exxon sits on the board, other oil companies sit on that board, and even just having that bit of transparency has changed the way that board is making decisions now. So those are two things that sound not like they're going to change the world, but this is the kind of the way things have to get done down there. You know, I've been thinking a lot about um, how you support that much chemical production, right? And then do it in a way that you're not harming communities. So many of these African-American communities are, again, these so-called buffer zones, right? They just use poor, poor communities, which are, you know, disproportionately minority communities, um, to wall off everyone else in the state from the dangers of chemical production and other industrial pollutants. And so, you know, what would a state like, how could a state like Louisiana support that kind of industry, but uh, move people away from those zones? So like, is it the state's responsibility to actually physically move people and allow them to get new homes? Is it the company's responsibility to to help these communities and basically get like move people away? I guess I, I don't really know what the answer is there. Do, do any of you have you ever put some some thought into that? Stephen, you're coming around to my point of view, we should move people. <laughs> I mean, look, yeah, I, yeah, but, I, but there's a difference. I'm conflicted about these things. Look, I'm conflicted about these things. I, I certainly get the fact that Louisiana was an openly sort of just bribery, you know, sort of infested place. Now the bribery is all done legally and sort of like, you know, like by the book, but it's still a place that has huge amounts of corporate interests. That being said, the thing that worries me is that you know, like, there's really only one way to solve this in the U.S. parlance, which is to ship these jobs overseas and have all this pollution occur in China or India or the Philippines or Indonesia or the places, right? I mean, like, these, we still want to use the plastics and the chemicals and the wetsuit material that comes from these plants. What we're saying, we just don't want white people and, and Americans to be affected in Louisiana. But we also need to hold the these companies responsible for what they really are supposed to do. So 
um, depending on whose numbers you use, between 30 and 60% of the wetland loss in Louisiana is due to the oil and gas exploration. And those companies are required to restore the wetlands, which they're not doing. So if we can just hold them to what they're even supposed to do, um, maybe that would create a more sustainable um, environment down there. Yeah, I think that's great. I, I think the coal companies should also restore all of the blights that they've done on the land back to original condition, which they've also agreed to do, right? But I, you know, but then they conveniently go bankrupt right before they have to do any of that work. I, you know, I, I'm a mixed feelings about this. I mean, you know, now that I have like a partially electric car, the fact that most of my cobalt comes from the Congo, like, you know, disturbs me. Like, I mean, 50, I think 52% or something of cobalt comes from the Congo. Um, where you have child labor basically getting this stuff. You know, I do think that we have to think more broadly about industrialization and sort of how we all like to live in the suburbs and, you know, let all of this stuff happen in other places. Louisiana is a basket case, and this article broke my heart. Um, But it's a basket case in lots of other areas too, right? Louisiana is the highest rate of obesity um, in the country. It also has very high smoking rates. It also has... Um, you know, very high rates of like sexually transmitted diseases. Um, it's just, I, you know, it's one of those things where I just, I feel like, you know, things should be better, but I also feel like we've got to figure out how to move away from these sort of toxic processes that, you know, make the products that we use in our lives. You know, one kind of ray of light, um, I asked Daryl about Mitch Landrieu, um, who is the mayor of New Orleans, um, what are they doing in New Orleans? And basically, Landrew has said, we want to be a resilient city. They're working very closely with architects and engineers in Holland, because Holland has a lot of the same issues with water, um, to really try to change policies on water. And I think that's helpful. If you can get a leader like that in the state to really um, move forward on water efficiency on water resource planning. And then they're also, they have done some efficiency in solar. They had a really good solar tax credit for a long time, um, along with that three, those three LNG export terminals. So I think, you know, they, they are trying to make progress and there are people in the state who've been dedicated to doing this for a long time. And I think when you bring together people like Lieutenant General Honoré with the environmental community and with citizens who are really just fed up with the way they're having to live, I think they can start um, making a difference, although it's going to be quite incremental. Um, and any response to this uh, other John Upton article about the floods in Louisiana? I mean, people didn't really pay attention to how disastrous these floods were. $10 billion in damage, over a dozen deaths, communities still reeling because they haven't gotten federal funding. Uh, you know, FEMA has has scaled back its funding and has taken away some grants for communities that are... Um, working on counseling services and and rebuilding. It just seems like kind of a mess down there. No, that's right. And I think that areas are flooding and they had more floods this week too um, in places that haven't really been flood zones at all. So uh, definitely they're getting hit with some pretty serious climate change events on top of everything else. Well, there's a theme here, right, folks? Um, In parts of Louisiana where these floods hit, uh, more than one in four households live in poverty. So whether it's the type of pollution we're talking about or uh, communities that are most vulnerable to climate change or communities that are getting hit 
by rising bills because of favors in the legislature to support these kinds of um, large-scale boondoggle projects, um, you know, this is a this is a real problem. And- yeah, and I would just say that, remember, I know, Jigger, you talk about giving everybody a bus ticket, but the so the Isle of St. Charles, which is under threat of, you know, imminent destruction by climate change, um, they have money from HUD to relocate, but they can't afford to buy any land on which to relocate because the land that doesn't flood is more expensive than the land that does. So, yeah, you can give someone money to move, but they still may not be able to afford to. Well, I have a piece of land in Illinois waiting for them. <laughs> I might move there. I'm serious. Like, I'm just so tired of this stuff, right? I mean, the, the people in this country are moving at 50% less rate than they did in the 1980s. If my dad ever lost his job, we would have moved five states over to get another job. Look, I mean, I totally understand your logic, but like it doesn't hold up in the real world because the places where the jobs are and, you know, moving from these rural areas to the areas that are either most protected environmentally or offer the, the best jobs are so damn expensive to live. And you're talking about a pretty wide gap economically. You're just talking about the East Coast. It's not expensive to live where I grew up. You can still buy a house for $53,000. There's not expensive in Indiana, Wisconsin, most parts of Iowa. There's lots of jobs in a lot of those places. And not, you know, I mean, like, I think North Dakota still has unemployment rates of 3 or 4%, right? I mean, it's just there's lots of places where they need people to move and are not expensive. It's just... People just don't want to move. And I, I get it. I get that, that they're tied to where they went to high school. But this is what climate change looks like. Everyone who's in a place that's in a floodplain, whatever, will have to move. We don't have the money to put your house on stilts. Well, I appreciate the offer. When, when I'm in Boston in a low-lying area, so when I get flooded out, I'm coming to your land in Illinois. $53,000. All right. It's a deal. <laughs> Let's tell our listeners something they don't know. Jigger, what's your story this week? So two of my good friends, uh, John Powers and Brandon Hurlbut, wrote a great piece in Fortune magazine um, celebrating uh, the 40th anniversary of the Department of Energy uh, on August 4th. And so just wanted to highlight you know, all the great work that, that DOE has done over the last 40 years, including fracking, as well as you know, solar and wind and battery technologies and fuels and all sorts of extraordinary work that they've done, as well as keeping our nuclear arsenal safe. Um, and... You know, on that subject, I also wanted to highlight the fact that the Solar Decathlon is happening this year. It's a uh, event that's close to my heart as when I was at BP, BP was the main sponsor of the event back in 2002. And um, this year it's in Denver, Colorado, October 5th through the 15th. And so if your company is not affiliated with the Solar Decathlon, it's important, I think, for all of us to do to be affiliated with it because these are the university students that we're going to be hiring in the next few years. Oh, man, the decathlon's the best. Go check it out. It is worth it. It's such a cool event. And uh, happy anniversary, DOE. We'll see if you still exist in three years' time. Catherine, what's your story? Yeah, so guess who else is celebrating 40-year anniversary? The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. 
Um, you had to know I was going to mention this. So um, FERC is this close to having a quorum. Um, Neil Chatterjee was sworn in this week as a commissioner. Rob Howelson is expected to be sworn in on Monday. And then they will officially have a quorum. And 14 days after the quorum is restored, they have this cushion whereby the commissioners can kind of get their, get their sea legs or their FERC legs before they have to start voting. But I reached out uh, to the agency and said, so what do you guys, do you have a process for what you have to work on first? There's all this backlog. And they said, first, they have to, um, you know, they have to vote out cases that they were not able to vote out without the quorum. Uh, the second tranche is kind of rulemaking proceedings where they've, they're, they're not official votes, but they're pending issues that they really need input from the new commissioners. So it's very important that all commissioners weigh in on all these different rulemaking proceedings. So that's sort of the second tranche. And then the third is things that are going to start flooding in filings that were being held back because people didn't want to file until there was a quorum. So now that things are going to be filed, they will then have statutory dates attached to them for for rulemakings to be made. So these are sort of three separate issues. They're trying to do them in different tranches where they really deal with all three buckets at the same time, bit by bit. But um, you know, to her credit, Acting Chair LaFleur has put a process into place that should get them all all um, up to speed pretty quickly once they get that quorum on Monday. Oh, man, I can hear the giddiness in your voice, Catherine. (laughs) Okay, well, um, we're all staying in Washington for our stories. Uh, Next week in D.C., August 15th, is the first hearing at the ITC over Ceneva's and SolarWorld's trade case, and everyone is positioning themselves for it. Uh, SIA, I think, is ramping up its communications and um, you know, they're trying to message around job losses. And meanwhile, Suniva and SolarWorld are out with a report saying that uh, tariffs or minimum prices would actually boost jobs long term. There is a serious war of words brewing up. And we've had this little bit of a quiet period. Um, and I think after August 15th, things are going to going to heat right up. So we will have a reporter there at the event. We're going to be doing some boots on the ground reporting, getting reaction from people there who are commenting on either side. We'll hopefully get a picture of the kinds of questions that the ITC is asking. There is this preliminary report that was just released in which the ITC details the the um, the impact of uh, foreign products on U.S. solar manufacturing, which is kind of interesting, and we're digging through that right now. So next, starting next week, expect to hear a lot more about the Cineva trade case. And that's a wrap, folks. I'm going to let my wonderful co-hosts go back to their vacations. Catherine is uh, in the Adirondacks, and what are you going to do? Go hiking? Go study some more FERC documents? Yeah, I think the former. <laughs> Enjoy. And uh, Jigger, you're going to hop on a plane now and head down to Kentucky. So get a good swim in on the lake there and uh, try not to get any arguments about, you know, telling people to, to move. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think I think I'll avoid that one and how women are biologically inferior to men on computer programming. <laughs> right. And if you, you if you don't know that reference, that is, of course, the uh, Google engineers manifesto that was posted on a. Uh, within a Google internal message board that, you know, got a lot of controversy. The former Google engineer's manifesto. Oh, was he fired? Yes. Oh, yeah. Like a, like a, like a coal plant. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, folks. Enjoy the rest of your summer. We'll catch you next week. 
Uh, thanks to everyone who gave us a rating and review. We, we saw a little ramp up in activity in recent weeks, and uh, keep that going. That's, that's important for us. Uh, we'll catch you next week. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. Thank you.